Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. All right. Thanks well, for coming let's, on, let's man. Get going. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here, dude. I've been looking forward you. to to this chat since I as soon as you as soon as I got that email in my inbox that said, "Hey, Garrett, I'm I'm down to down to do this." I'm like, "Yes, this is gonna be awesome." <laughs> <laughs> and then I was even more excited after I started reading your book because I, I thought, okay, what I've been doing is is I have tended to you know reach out to different people I think might be interesting to talk to, and then I gauge my reading schedule based on who actually is down to talk because right. that I don't end up having to read 400 books. <laughs> but of course. Yeah. This book, man, uh, it is, I don't know if it's just like, it's just meeting me exactly where I'm at and, and it's just amazing to me, but it's, it was definitely an amazing experience for me. I'm, I'm so enjoying this. Oh, great. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. I haven't, I, I, I tweeted you earlier this week. I, I, I was trying to, pace myself because I was enjoying it too much and I didn't I noticed it's kind of short I didn't want to run out of book <laughs> right yeah I know it's a quick read it's but, like nice big print just like under 200 pages or just about just over <laughs> so anybody I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this around to my friends but anybody who wants a good book to inspire you well I mean I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll chat a little bit about this but <laughs> for sure I yeah mean, I'm, I'm happy yeah what one of the main things that like jumps out is just like well I mean even the imagery on the front is just like there's this darkness and this redness, this uh, everything, everything about you is all like dark and brooding. <laughs> you find, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Maybe on the surface. Um, but I'm pretty cheerful usually. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it's kind of a weird contradiction because even in this, I mean, you're talking about art as like, I mean, even you talk about it, you use this, this terminology of like terrible beauty and right. things like that, or, it's just like so. Beauty is this thing that's like so big and so strange that like if you if you see it, it might destroy you. <laughs> but yeah, well, that that seems to be what what happens sometimes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. How, I mean, so is the, I don't know. I don't even know where to start. But I mean, is do you think of art and do you think of like do you think of this whole spiritual other world as something fundamentally like positive, something that like that like it brings you hope. I mean, obviously you said you're a pretty cheerful guy, despite the fact that you've seemingly gazed yeah. into the abyss. Right. Right. Um, I think that, you know, there's a, a theologian named Rudolf Otto who wrote a beautiful short little book uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. It was called the idea of the holy. And in this book, he really develops this idea of the sacred or the holy as, um, you know, what he calls 
Mysterium fascinans et tremendum, so that the the mystery that is both terrible and fascinating, and this idea that uh, that um, the sacred might uh, be, be become a cause of of terror or fear or wonder to the point of a kind of um, to you know taking you to, right to the brink of a of, of madness or something like that is something that I find aesthetically compelling but also um something that experience has shown me is is actually a thing right <laughs> so like uh there's a, a an author i really like his name is matt carden and um in his fiction and in his, in his essays he really develops this idea of dark illumination the idea that that illumination in the old sense in the christian you know in the sense of the judeo-christian sense of being illuminated by truth could actually result in something that would be difficult to put in positive terms within the ethos of like everyday life, you know, that it's something that is so, um, so seismic in its consequence that it, you could you could describe it positively or negatively you know one of the way. things i've thought about like within that especially within sort of the, the christian scope i mean obviously i grew up in a, in a more christian environment and so there's a lot of a lot of biblical stuff that just kind of bubbles up for me whenever thinking about this stuff but like the idea that you can't see god or you can't see the face of god and live right right like, w one of the ways i interpret that now is like okay when when you get a glimpse of the, of the thing that's like underneath everything or like this mm -hmm. whatever that higher world is it's like it's it can be inspiring but inspiration fundamentally is something that that requires you to lay something down of yourself and maybe destroy a part of yourself or like you, you can't see the face of god except when you do you're going to die <laughs> yeah yeah well something has to die right um that's that's built into the idea of transcendence uh once you when you're confronted to something that is truly transcendent something that transcends the very kind of logic of our normal mode of consciousness then necessarily your own kind of contingency as a person your relativity um becomes kind of splendidly obvious and then that's you know, whatever attachments you have will be challenged by that and then you know it, it requires a kind of yeah, if you're going to go that deep, then it's it's going to it's it's not all going to be like, you know, butterflies and and harps and angels, you know. So, yeah, that's just kind of and and, and as for the like how that worked into the book, um uh it's just that for me the my own search into these things, my own you know, journey has been a, very much kind of focused on what I call the weird in a general sense. And like, and I'm just really into that. Um, yeah, could, uh, it's not the like only, find that a yeah. little bit more, like you use that word in a, in a very unique way. It seems like, yeah, the weird, yeah, the weird, well, I have, a, I have a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a I co-host a podcast called weird studies with okay, Phil yeah. Ford. And, um, so every other week we, every other week we'll discuss a novel or a film or not necessarily always weird stuff. Like we're not, it's not like a weird fiction podcast where we're, we're looking at Lovecraft or, um, you know, John Carpenter as 
because I'm just saying that because actually we are going to do a John Carpenter film soon, but we we talk about all kinds of things. Like one of our last shows was about the beauty and the beast, but not the Disney version. I actually actually listened to a little bit of that one. That was really interesting to, to, well, it's just like, well, Evan last year did, did a, uh, had a class on kind of like on the on fairy tales and like the original versions and stuff and like it's interesting to to see how much is underneath those like very pretty simple stories that I mean even the Disney versions are are quite you know quite interesting I think they tap into something but then hearing these kind of more terrifying scary ones that they're based yeah. on yeah yeah exactly and a lot of them have been kind of sanitized yeah you know even the Grimm brothers when they were um collecting all these tales uh would you know polish them a little bit make them a little bit more amenable to you know mid or early 19th century taste and uh but the the fairy tales are, are quite 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 dark um as are the tales that make up our religious scriptures you know right. whether you know, it, which uh, like christians tend to not be like not too skittish about like sharing you know a story about god destroying all of humanity all at right. once but like but we for some reason want to like sort of whitewash these other fairy tales like i guess yeah i'm not sure, yeah. I'm not sure why that works out that way yeah i guess it's yeah that that's a really interesting topic and you know you could say you know i i, I could think of possible answers to that like for example for instance people think that god is good so therefore whatever god does is good but it's not good to flood the world and kill (laughs) everyone no matter how good you are you know that's not a good thing to do so um there's a lot of of darkness in the old testament that um uh is kind of can be superficially kind of neutered or put away in its place by saying well it's god so therefore it must have been good in some way i don't understand but that's that doesn't really cut it for me um you know there's a what's the i think the first of the proverbs is the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom you know well i mean do, do you believe like is that a fundamental belief about your understanding of god do you think god is good of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I am a Catholic, so just, right. you know, for the record, uh I think God is good, absolutely. I think that a lot of the stories in the Old Testament, I mean, there are as much stories about us as they are about God. There's stories about how we how humanity and God accommodate themselves to one another painfully over time from a human perspective. So um so, yeah. What's all this like I mean, what is all the darkness then? If so, it's like there, there's there's a, there's a good God out there, but then like there's all this like creepy or like again we go back to the word terrible stuff, which I think is yeah. interesting. I wanted to come back to like terrible has such a negative con- connotation in like the modern way that we use it, but it, it used to kind of mean something else, right? Terrible or terrific? Yeah. <laughs> which we've kind of you yeah, know you could say either one. It could <laughs> have it's such like a, saying yeah. I mean, these words are are very ambivalent. Terrible, terrific have the same root. Awesome, awful, same root. Ah, but it's so like the, we, we've the, taken the, the mysterious version of the word and just sliced it up so that we ha- we have a, a an obviously good and obviously bad version. We don't have like a, a, something that like alludes to any sort of mystery. Exactly the thing, and 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 what we're missing is the the third way like like the kind of the 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 middle part which would unite this the terror the you know the positive and the negative aspects or poles of this terror of this terror and i think that's what the weird does um like to get back to the weird um 
for me, the weird is the moment where the experience of seeing rationalization itself or our, our, our ability to formulate coherent ideas to accommodate what we're confronted with fails. So, you know, like we talk about, it's what makes you, yeah, it's what makes you stop. Like in the book, I talk about the rift, yeah. right? Like the rift is like in any work of art, uh, in any great work of art, you'll have little moments or details or aspects that don't quite um, jibe with everything else. They stand out either because they're like, there could be an, like, it could look like an error or it could be an intentional kind of, um, you know, like uh, you can imagine a painter making a painting that's just too perfect. So at the end, he just takes his brush and just like, whack, just like <laughs> smears it a little bit just to give it a little bit of chaos. Well, that's the rift, you know, that little crack in the fabric of things. So if you can imagine that rift transposed to, to our experience of reality itself, there's always a crack. There's always a moment where our very coherent ideas fail to make complete sense of what we're looking at. And in that crack, in that rift, in that little moment, that little hiccup of reason, a whole world of weirdness opens up. Because if reason fails, then the world is fundamentally not just rational. And that in itself makes the world fundamentally, in some sense, weird. So, yeah. Wait, so, so the weird is, is what? The weird, the weird is that bigger world? Yeah, well, the weird, the, the weird is just a term we describe, yeah, a term we use to describe a certain type of experience, a certain quality of, of an aesthetic quality of certain moments that uh, put us ill at ease with things. It's, uh, you know, we, when you talk about, oh, that was really weird, and I mean, there's a mundane way of using that word, but when we use it in literature or film, we usually mean films that are a little bit surreal, literature like that, that has to do with the unknowable or the unthinkable or the unspeakable like the Mona yeah. Lisa smile, like that's that's the thing everybody talks about is like because you can't real it, there's it's just something uncanny about it. Like w w what is that expression? It it confounds right. me, and you have to like suddenly. It, 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 well, I mean, you talk about how it just it breaks the cycle of like okay, that's what that is because I can use it for this. Like exactly, that's our usual cognitive process is looking out for things and kind of grasping them and fitting them into our system of like tools. Right, and we have our little tool belt, and we're just reaching th for things and converting them into tools, and then we reach for something, and we're like, "I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. I, I, I literally don't know, don't know how to use that. It's there's, right. I don't have a use for that. Or like, I think you even talk about how like art is is literally useless. That's like the point. <laughs> yeah. Well, art is. Yeah, actually, I mean, you think, if you think about it, art as we understand it since the 18th century. I mean, the concept of art, as I'm using it in the book, is quite recent. But the, uh, the, the art is is that which is made to be beheld, to be experienced, not to be used. Uh, um, I mean, that's not so obvious now because people have really um, taken that idea. And I mean, I was just reading, uh, rereading Walter Benjamin today, who wrote a very influential essay, 1920s, called the work of art in the age of mechanical mechanical reproduction where he mm. is taking a very strong marxist stance on art and for him art needs to serve the political uh, agenda right it needs to serve the for the it needs to support serve and and facilitate the liberation of the proletariat right yeah. so um and he specifically singles out the 
uh, art for art's sake crowd of the late 19th century, saying that this was the last kind of bastion of the idea, the, 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 the attempt to make art kind of to retain this kind of religious aura that art had. But he believes that that aura needs to be just removed so that art can become popular art and it can serve, you know, the Marxist Interesting. process. Anyways, in this book, I'm obviously going uh, siding with the other side right, of that right. particular debate because I don't think, and I think now that we've had 120 years of of this sort of thinking, I think we can pretty much know with a certain amount of certainty that humans can't function without a vision, some kind of sense of the transcendent. And art has been for us a way to access that. And um, and so just as every instance of that of the transcendent in the life of a mystic or whatever is going to have both you know it's going to be it's going to it's going to disclose a mystery that is both fascinating and terrible so art as a kind of access to to the transcendent gives us that ambivalent experience of being both disturbing and and uh, and, and and blissful or liberating or it's, it's galvanizing hard to, yeah. to form like a you can't form a relationship with that that's comfortable anyways because again no. it, as soon as you look at it it always challenges you it, it always tells you to die it tells you to sort of yeah right or to yeah. bow. i mean like yeah. that's even what the act sort of, of bowing is is like to lay like putting yourself lower and saying okay there's something that higher that i need to be or that i need to look up to yeah and it's not always obvious right like um like you'll have a, you know, like a pop song, you know, it might come and go. It, it, it might be really beautiful. You might really like it. But I find this is very, I mean, nobody listens to the radio anymore, but <laughs> back when people listened to the radio, there was a special magic that occurred when a song you really liked, and this could be a song, you know, maybe you have this record, you've listened to the song a billion times. I remember a specific instance when like, some one of the less common Pink Floyd songs came out came on the radio, and I, when I was a kid, I was a huge Pink Floyd fan. So I had listened to this song. I can't remember which song it was. Now it wasn't like "Wish You Were Here" or "Comfortably Numb." It was one of the lesser. Anyways, it came on the radio one day, and it was a song that I would never have put on the record again, on the record player again, because I just it had I'd, I'd exhausted it. But the minute it came on in that new context on the radio. It was like listening to it for the first time. This song that I had, when I thought of it, that by that point I, 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 I thought of it like as a, like a flaccid balloon, like just a balloon that had popped. It was done. I was mo I moved on to other music, came back with all the force it had from the beginning. It still had all that magic, and so even a pop song. I mean, the thing the thing that we do is that there's lots of art around, right? And so we kind of categorize it. We put in galleries. We put in libraries. We put it in a literary studies course where it makes sense and it, it's a nice comment on the working conditions of people in the nineteen in eighteen fifty or whatever, and that allows us to ignore it basically. I think most art criticism is an attempt to ignore art, to neuter it, to look look past it. But sometimes when it catches you off guard, you know, like I've always wanted to write a play about the guy. There's this rich, I don't know who it is actually, this really powerful, very wealthy person bought the scream, you know, Ed Edvard Munch's scream, the famous painting of a, it's like a, just a man on a bridge, like screaming. Okay. Um, and uh, I was going to say, you could pull it up, but it's going to ruin our video, but. Right. 
yeah i mean anybody can you can google it yeah. you know munch the scream and um uh, somebody bought it for i don't remember how much it was it was like this ridiculous amount of money like tens of millions and <laughs> i just wanted to like write a, like, a musical <laughs> about <laughs> the guy who bought it and he hangs it in his dining room and he's so proud of it invites his friends over his wealthy friends and they look at it and it slowly drives him mad but he doesn't really realize it wow. because and it doesn't need to be the scream you know it could be sure you know i always go back to van gogh sunflowers those things are terrifying to me but anyways yeah wait wait so what what is why why does it make him go crazy i mean it, i haven't seen the picture if i if i look at it am i gonna understand <laughs> well if you look at it you'll understand yeah it's worth taking a look if you want to take a minute on his phone oh <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I I know this picture. Yeah, right. <laughs> I couldn't imagine having that in my living. Like, what do you when you own that picture? What is it that you own? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like isn't that an image of precisely that which cannot be owned, that which owns you? Isn't that an image of that? Right, so where do you, where which do you owns put that? us? It's it's not even a thing that, yeah. that can have a, a place. <laughs> right. Right. It, it, it's that which has no place. Exactly. It is the, uh, um, the, uh, I think this the Greek word is atopos, which is like the, that which has no place, precisely that. It's okay. that which is everywhere and nowhere because at once. to have a place would mean, that, that would distill you down to a particular meaning, a particular use. It's like, this is how you fit into a machine that's doing something. Right. Right. And, and and to make a, a long story short, the point of the book is just to um, argue that art in itself, and you know, when I think of art, I'm thinking of the, what I believe are the greatest instances of it. The good, you know, the th you know, when you if you're a carpenter, you're you're going you're not going to use like a like a plastic chair for a dollhouse as your model. You're going to think of a, like a throne that would be the ultimate chair well the ultimate works of art do this in a very peculiar way and um so using that as the kind of measure of what art can do then i kind of make the argument that all art is aspiring is moving in that direction is kind of trying to do that trying to trying to disclose this unknowable side of life right i mean Okay, there's two things I wanted to, but well, for one thing, reading this, I honestly felt like I was like walking through, I, I had the, like in my head, this very almost visual experience of like walking through a museum and just having a very excited tour guide point out to me all these like insane anomalies. Like, I mean, you're referencing a lot of, of books and movies and songs and mm -hmm. pieces of art, a lot of which, I mean, some of which I'd heard of, a lot of which I haven't, and I, I, a lot of it was just like reading. Okay, gotta go look that up. Listen to that for a little bit. I spent today listening mm. to a little bit of of that that album. Um, oh, it's called. It's it, it was the one by the band Wilco. I forget that name. Of the oh, name Yankee of Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a fantastic album. Yeah, that knocked my socks off. And then, yeah. and then I also listened a little bit to just some Wagner, which I haven't listened to a lot of yeah. different classical music. Just, I mean, right. the problem with like when you listen. To music, at least the way my musical diet works is like I listen to something because somebody I care about told me to listen to it. Mm -hmm. But like yeah. being a young adult in the current world and not having been in like some 
snooty art program or something like that. I, I don't have people like telling me to go in and, and listen to or watch or read like classical pieces of art. And it's like just having snippets of here and there, just finding somebody mentioned something that so- sounds interesting and looking it up and just being, it's like insane to me realizing how much like deeply meaningful and, and, and you know, Mm. how crazy these experiences can be with 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 real art i mean i guess i'm sort of contrasting that with like i feel like a lot of the art a lot of the music i listen to at least the stuff that comes on the radio i don't know maybe i'm a little too critical but it it doesn't no, quite... i think most of it is shit <laughs> let's just admit it I, I i have a difficult i have some friends that want to push back on that but i yeah i was i was wondering what your view is on that like how do you why why are we where we are with art now Oh, well that, yeah. Well, um, hmm, that's, that's a big question. And, and, but I think the, I think what you're, what you're, what you're getting at here, and I think this is a very important thing to discuss is that since World War II, it started before, since let's say middle of World War, World War I, when they basically invented modern propaganda, since around that time, increasingly after the Second World War, since Hiroshima and we have lived in a world that is um, hyper-aesthetic. Like basically the aesthetic side, you know what I mean by aesthetic? It's like the aesthetic meaning that which pertains to like that, which pertains to the senses, right. to okay, how the senses. As that it has to yeah. do, the same word, root word is asthma. So it has to do with the breath and like it takes your breath. Right. And it, it's the same that concept of making you stop. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the good side of the aesthetic, yeah. but the aesthetic has become a quite a broad uh, category, right? The aesthetic includes the way that you might design a vacuum cleaner or a laptop. The uh, the whole idea of user experience, user interface is an aesthetic art. Um, uh, it's functional, but it's all about how the how you one experiences, let's say, a product or a jingle or a commercial or a car you 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 don't just you know we don't just sell like the motor of the car with like just a you know the car's designed in order to create a kind of brand experience right um so branding is an aesthetic uh discipline right so so there's the whole the whole idea is that um since the second world war world war we're completely bombarded by these aesthetic forces is everything all right technically you guys look like you're i was just making sure the camera was still going okay yeah (laughs) okay we have some issues with that camera sometimes but all right no problem all right so um so just think about Times square as the ultimate symbol of this you go into this space and it's just completely covered every square inch is covered with information with lights and you know blinking and flashing lights like the initial experience of that is like one of i mean especially as a kid it's like it's kind of brings some wonder it's like whoa look at all this of course yeah it's like being thrown into what the tibetans call the bardo realms after death you know it's like just the world of like disembodied entities we know this we last summer we, we we did a little camping trip and had a had a we did a book club camping trip. We spent three days out in somewhere in Northern Ontario and read the Tibetan book of the dead every night by the campfire. <laughs> oh, fantastic. A lot of bardos. Do you, yeah, a lot do of you bardos. remember? Yeah. <laughs> do you remember which translation you read? Um, no, you don't have it with you. Nah, 
there's a couple of good ones that um i prefer but anyways not a couple of good ones like i've read I, <laughs> sorry i've read this book 10 times uh, in 12 no, but when i was yeah when i was really into it i i was looking for the perfect translation or what i thought was the perfect translation yeah. <laughs> I, don't read, I don't read tibetan so anyways um so and what what is the purpose of the aesthetic today it's to market to us to influence our votes to influence our minds uh, we're not even aware of it. I mean, social media is a completely aestheticized space. It's all designed to create an experience in you that'll get you clicking and you'll keep clicking. Right. A casino is, is designed aesthetically to suck you in and take yeah. all your money. That's what the purpose of these things are. Um, even like cheap, trashy aesthetics, like the way lottery tickets are are designed, yeah. is to appeal to a certain demographic, you know, to get them. Everything is thought out with, um, it's, the, it's the opposite of what we've been talking about. Utility is the kind of guiding operating principle. My friend was explaining to me the other day that about making thumbnails for YouTube, which colors, uh, like subconsciously catch your attention more quickly right apparently blue it's like that's the first thing that your eye will go to but red will keep mm -hmm. your attention a little bit longer and it's right like, i i felt so ugly even thinking about that process like i don't i don't want to know this i don't want to make this decision based on this <laughs> i know because once you've gone down down that road it's very hard to come back um and so uh, given that we are constantly being assaulted with aesthetic forces, let's call them, all right, um, it's, it becomes, we really have to carve out a space to appreciate something like, you know, Edvard Munch's The Scream, uh, especially since it's been put on a billion t-shirts we've seen yeah. before we've even seen the, the painting. Um, and like, so it takes a lot of work. Strangely enough, in this hyper-aesthetic age, it takes a lot of work to get back to what art is. Uh, part of to it, get like, to, yeah, when, yeah. When you're so surrounded by propaganda, and I mean, you, you talk about two different types of, of artifice. You have propaganda and pornography, which are both just attempts to, to aesthetic, <laughs> aesthetic attempts to manipulate, right? Correct, yeah. But yeah. when you're so surrounded by that stuff all the time, to even maintain any semblance of sanity, you have to like put up these walls to like prevent mm -hmm. being taken in by everything. And it's like, yeah. just noticing that process is so heartbreaking to me because it's like, it, it, you end up preventing yourself from being able to experience, you know, the good version of, of the aesthetic pull into like something greater. Yeah. So it makes people very suspicious of all art. So you, and you'll get takes like what you, you find all over the place today, which is like, you know, you can't listen to Wagner because Wagner was an anti-Semite or you can't read Hemingway because he was... Uh, a troubled man who did troubling things, you know. Um, I couldn't care less about Hemingway, to be honest, but he's still, he's he's still, you know, he has a place. You know, he's done stuff. But I mean, uh, or you know, William Burroughs, or Michael Jackson, <laughs> Michael Jackson, right? A true artist, I think you yeah. can make the argument. The point is that, like, or um, you know, it 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 doesn't end. Like Miles Davis, you know, Miles Davis was a violent man with the women in his life. And so, does that mean I can't listen to his music because he was, you know, so you, you end up, and, and I think that that's, I, I can sympathize with that because we have no reason to trust art today. We have no reason to trust the aesthetic. We're constantly being manipulated. So, when we're confronted with like Hamlet, why wouldn't that be trying to manipulate me too? 
Right. Why wouldn't it be trying to convince me that, you know, Elizabethan, you know, proto-colonial Elizabethan England's a good idea? Well, I know what it was really about, you know. It was about domination, conquest, and that's what Shakespeare really represents. And I and that's unfortunate because there's so much more going on there. And the first thing you have to leave at the door when you enter the that space of art is that type of thinking that everything's moral, that everything's moral, everything's a question of morality or a question of manipulation. There's something beyond all that that art um, is our main, our only remaining, really, our only viable uh, remaining access to, you know, it's just, it's just unfortunate that even that now is, is getting harder and harder to connect with because seems like we lost religion. We've lost, and now we're going to, we're going to lose art. Then. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it seems like, so part of the, part of the assumption in that sort of skepticism of art is that like, that the art that you're experiencing from an artist is like just a little piece of them bottled up and served up to you. Like, right. it's, so it's like, okay, I don't want to listen to Michael Jackson because that's actually just, that's just rapist music. Right. <laughs> like, right. No, uh, the, the, I mean, the other way of looking at it would be that like the artist is like tapping into some greater story, something that's like going on that like that it's not that they're in control of. They're just like kind of trying to pull it down a little bit and hand it to you. And it's like to the extent right. well, that, yeah, that no, you, sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, no, go yeah. for it. <laughs> no, no, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, the way I put it in the book is simple. It's, it, if art is just basically opining, which is what a lot of people think, then yes, every work of art ever made is just an expression of the author's and and his or her oh, times opinions. Self-expression, right? <laughs> so they're exp you know, Shakespeare expressed himself, gave us, you know, Hamlet and Othello and the Tempest, but really like he was either just expressing his own opinions or he was, he was expressing the the opinions of his time and all the prejudices of his time. Well, if 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 that's all art is, then yeah, I'm with the people who are very skeptical of it. Why wouldn't you be? If, however, somebody like Carl Jung is right, and there are these deep primordial images that shape shape our world even before we become conscious of it, deep archetypal forces that govern and structure our experience, and art is our way of getting to those of letting those show themselves to us a little bit, then it's a totally different story. Then it'd be, it'd be just as, it'd be, it'd be, you know, just as it'd be ridiculous to say, well, I'm not going to drive a Volks, drive a Volkswagen because, you know, Nazi Germany invented the Volkswagen <laughs> or I'm not going to, you know, Darwin, you know, I don't know what the sins of Darwin were. Um, they, those would be very well, he invented evolution, hidden. which, which, uh, which is anti-Bible. <laughs> well, there's that. Let's say, let's say you're like a hardcore um, secular, you know, believer in evolution as I am, you know, like I, I, I believe that. I, but if, if, if it were to come to light, the Darwin okay. was, he married his cousin. There's that. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, right. He's a, he's a cousin yeah, Darwin married his, yeah. Right. So he married his cousin incest. Yeah. So, I, so that means that evolution isn't true. I mean, the point is that if there is truth in art, if there's some kind of truth and we need to really discuss, unpack that concept, know what that means. But if there is some kind of truth, and I think it'd be insane to argue that there's no truth in something like uh, 
like munch, like the scream, you know, it's yeah. giving us something true about it, about reality, about our experience in this world, about the human condition, whatever. Well, if there's truth in it, then of course that's that the author becomes a completely uh, an instrument of that truth, just like Darwin is just an instrument of the truth of evolution. Um, but what so do you, do you can make that argument with, I mean, so, so maybe it's referencing something true, but I mean, that, that really, really begs the question. I mean, what, what are you trying to say when you're talking about truth? I mean, also, I, I, well, is yeah. that yeah. sort of in the same category? I mean, you're talking about archetypes too. Like I've read like a tiny, tiny bit of yoga. I, I read like his uh, autobiography and learned a little bit about the guy and like <laughs> just enough book. to be, to be like amazed but not feel like I have any comprehensive. I mean, I, I get you can't comprehend anybody, but I mean, I, I don't feel like I can put my finger on on him or or especially what he was talking about when he was talking about archetypes. Like I, I feel like I can sort of point to certain patterns and say, hey, that's that's this maybe that's this archetype he was talking about, but I don't know what an archetype is. Right. Okay. Um, should we get into that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I think I can. I think I can explain it. At least the way I understand it, pretty simply. Okay. Um, so, well, Jung, what he realized, and he wasn't the first to realize this, is he was looking at uh, the myths of the world, you know, world myth. He was looking at myths uh, from uh, all kinds of cultures in, in across Eurasia, the Americas, whatever. And he noticed the same patterns coming up again and again and again. And, um, and then he was also noticing more, most interestingly, that his patients, and he worked with schizophrenics for a very long time um, at the beginning of his career, he noticed that their dreams, their visions, their hallucinations, their experiences, whatever, conformed to the same mythic patterns that he saw in ancient myths. So, all he did was posit a concept, the archetype, to denote these patterns that keep popping up again and again in the life of, of, of cultures and, 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 uh, and groups of people, but also in the life of individual people. And so, now the mistake that people make is they think Jung meant that, like, oh, the, oh, the wise old man is an archetype. So, the wise old man comes up. Well, it's true that the wise old man is an archetype that comes up again and again, but that's not, for Jung, that's not, that's not the archetype itself. That's a man. That's a that's an image of the archetype. Right. The a archetype symbol. is a is a much deeper structural force that you could also find. You know, that's the human manifestation of it, or one of the human. But you might find a botanical manifestation of this, or an astronomical manifestation of this. These are the this is the these are the basic structural components of our entire reality for Jung, because Jung was a Kantian. So, he believed that we see the world only as humans could see it. So, the way we see the, whatever the world actually is, isn't important. The way we experience it is structured. Wait, it isn't important? For Jung, as a psychologist, all that mattered for him was treating his patients. He wasn't a metaphysician. He wasn't right, interested right. in what the world really, really, really is behind. Yeah. All he was is like, how do I get this person adjusted how do I get this person to live a better, more fulfilling right, right. life? There was a purpose behind what he was doing. It wasn't just art. <laughs> no, he wasn't. In, he wasn't interested. And in fact, he he spent years working on this gigantic tome called the Red Book, which you may have heard of. It's like yeah. all these illuminated pages. Like he would, you know, with medieval calligraphy, write out this these visions he had, and with these beautiful, uh, you know, drawings he made or pen and ink drawings. Anyways, he 
worked on this thing his whole life and one of his assistants was like you know it's it's a work of art and he's like don't ever say that it's not <laughs> art it's not art <laughs> wait what, is, what did he have against art uh he just thought that if he i i don't know now i'm just he he was in, he was doing bit. something much more profound than that he, in his mind he wasn't doing what he thought i don't know I, you know what i don't know and i don't even know if those anecdotes are true to be honest yeah yeah um but the thing is that he wasn't didn't see himself well, as I mean, a philosopher or an artist he saw if, himself as a doctor if art i mean if the association of art is with like pop art propaganda art and like that's what you think of when you say the word art that it's like no i'm, I'm not participating in that i'm doing something that's like bigger or different yeah i i think he was more i think he was more humble no he he recognized great art for sure like uh he has okay. an essay that i really recommend um if you read one thing by jung it should be this it's called uh other than the autobiography which is fantastic um it's called on the relation of analytical psychology to poetry which is a it's an amazing title, I know. But anyway, <laughs> so that that essay, uh, in that essay, he lays out his theory of art, and it's it's amazing, and he okay. he really does kind of. But in a way, as a psychologist, he sees psychology as the uh, discipline that's going to come in and make sense of all this art stuff, right? So he's still a scientist in that sense. Um, nobody's perfect. Yeah, it's funny because like people always rat on Jung, or as if like you know. He's he's not really a scientist. I mean, in in his day, anyways, a lot of he struggled. To, like he really wanted to be taken seriously as a scientist, right? Yeah, and he was uh, he, he was taken seriously um, to a certain extent. Um, it's more that the, the the Freudians didn't like him. Right? There was a kind of war, you know, with the Freudians. Um, and after Jung, uh, then he became associated with the counterculture and a lot of other movements that you know and eventually with the rise of post-structuralism in france and in the u.s you know derrida and all that he was basically put on you know that there's a great story of paul ricard paul ricard was is an amazing french philosopher theologian and uh he was at a conference one day he's talking about his his ideas and somebody points out it's like you know that really sounds like jung's archetypes what you're saying and he said I wouldn't know. Jung, Jung's on the index, and he was making reference to the famous index of the Vatican. You know, the Vatican has a or used to have a list of okay. books you can't read. So, but he, <laughs> he, this wasn't—he wasn't talking about the Vatican's index. He was talking about the French secular, okay. liberal, or socialist intellectual scenes index. Like you Despite couldn't that. read Jung. You know, like right. Gilles Deleuze, my favorite philosopher, was a huge Jung fan, but he hid it. It was never known. Okay. All of the references are hidden and cloaked. Interesting. Anyways, yeah. So he was seen as a as a kind of mystic or cultist after his death, but now um, he's being reassessed, reappraised, rightly so, I think. So he's he's tapping into like this. I mean, it's it's tough, I think, to talk about something. I mean, you didn't. You didn't totally get to the end i don't know with with your explanation of archetypes but like it's tough to fit that into us like a scientific system it seems like you think um i mean yeah i guess it is but without the archetypes you're not going to go very far with your science yeah you know <laughs> i'm gonna read you i'm gonna read you something okay uh, i love this i feel like so I'm, this is in Professor Martel's <laughs> office, and he's just pulling I'm out not a book a off the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a, okay. So this is um, this is a book called "The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light." 
by William Irwin Thompson, who passed away last year. He was an amazing okay. thinker, just a great writer. Um, and this is just this is the first page of his book. Um, this book came out in the late 70s. Anyways, I'm just going to read you this one page. Um, take a photograph of a reflection in a mirror and think of that piece of film, which will in turn reflect an image to the curving surfaces of the eye and the folding surfaces of the brain. Study the events of history as Thucydides did, and the work itself becomes an event of history. Study mythology, and the work itself becomes a piece of mythology, a story in which the old gods wear new clothes, but live as they did before the fashions became tight and constricting to their ancient natural movements. The scientist tries to examine the real nature of the photograph. He tries to get away from the psychological configuration, the meaning of the image, to move down to some other more basic level of patterns of alternating dots of light and dark, a world of elementary particles. And yet, what, and yet what does he find there but another mental configuration, another arrangement of psychological meaning? If he persists in this direction long enough, the mythological dimensions of science will become apparent in his work, as they would have if he had asked himself questions about the meaning of sunlight rather than questions about the behavior of photons. Science wrought to its uttermost becomes myth. History wrought to its uttermost becomes myth. But what is myth that it returns to the mind even when we would most escape it? What he's saying is that the patterns you'll find in works of science are all, always the same type of patterns you'll find in myth. You know, the myth, the, the theory of the Big Bang is pretty much exactly the story of Genesis and, and the Let There Be Light, the first few lines of Genesis. Right. You know, it was a Jesuit who came up with the theory of the Big Bang, Jesuit scientist. Okay. And at first, everybody was like, no, we can't, no way. Because until, until, um, until the Big Bang theory became kind of dogma in, the, in scientific circles, um, there was universal consensus or quasi or, 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 or basically virtually universal agreement among scientists that the universe, that matter was eternal. That was the standard view. And that was the view that, that was a view that modern scientists shared with the ancient Greeks. And the way the ancient Greeks and Romans reacted to these Christians and Jews who came around saying, no, no, the universe was created by this God. It just came into being. It, it sounded so absurd to them. They just okay. thought these people were insane. And, and, and the modern scientists, when they first were confronted with the idea of the Big Bang, thought the same thing. And yet all the evidence, when you look at the movements of the stars and all that crazy shit that astronomers do, it all points to the singularity at the beginning of time. How do you get, even think that the beginning of time is a crazy concept? But that's, like, that's the truth, right? What's his name? Steve, I think Stephen Hawking talking about imaginary time and like theorizing basically about another universe in which that causes this one to exist of like other beings. <laughs> you would need it. You would need it. You know, it's it's a it's a big mystery. The weird thing is that you know uh, the Big Bang has been confirmed again and again. Um, theoretically at least obviously you can't actually observe it so it's all the <laughs> theory but um and yet it's so counterintuitive and and that's just one example um uh, there's a a great anthropologist his name is bruno latour he's a french anthropologist and this guy instead of going to the amazon and working with like amazonian 
indigenous peoples, he decided to work on modern scientists. So he basically went into labs and observed scientists working the way he would have done it using the same techniques as anthropologists used in like in uh, non-Western wow. quarters. And what he observed is that the, the idea we usually have is this, okay? What, what people think normally is this. Science is very technical and crazy and mathematical. And then at some point, some theory is accepted and they're like, okay, it's time to explain this to the to the to the rubes you know to the outsiders to the people who don't know science so they get a science writer or a good a good science teacher to vulgarize this mathematical alchemy into language that we might understand so we'll get something like you know a picture of the solar system right which is a complete abstraction because if you were actually to represent all of the bodies celestial bodies in the solar system proportionately you, the sun would, would be like be the size coherent, of your house yeah. and the, the earth would be this little p it wouldn't be usable so you you vulgarize things you make them like amenable symbolic. to our <laughs> to our symbolic right so but but what happens for real latour wrote uh, realized is that the mythologizing the use the you the the ascription of agency to things which science says have no agency so basically when you're describing oh this photon wants to do this it's going this in order to do that that type of teleological thinking is there from the very beginning in science there's a middle ground there's a middle part in the process where it's abstracted into math but then it reconstellates afterwards so scientists never step out of a mythological apprehension of the world right they're always in that space of meaning purpose that's never something they actually can abstract um and of course they can't because if if you could really abstract that then why would you do science you know like like you can only do science if you think there's a purpose in doing it and uh, you're already well, I mean, ascribing purpose to your to yourself <laughs> as, a, as a young person it. like learning science it's just like oh well i mean there's two reasons you might want to like go and do science and learn science one would be like uh social or financial uh benefits from that like you know maybe mm -hmm. i can get a job doing this or maybe i could be popular by being smart uh, right which depending on the area you're living in maybe that makes you a nerd or maybe that makes you cool um, yeah <laughs> but or, or like that you're interested in it, which I mean, that's kind of a mysterious thing. Like, why, why would you be interested in something? But people don't, don't often necessarily, especially when they're young, like think about what that means. What, what, is, what does interest mean? But just like, okay, I'm interested in it, so I want to do it. But like, yeah. it's, when you're, like when you're doing science, yeah, it's like the, the, the purpose, you're, you're given a purpose of like, okay, well, you need to have a job. So here's, here's your job. You're going to go do science. But like, there's not... <sighs> Right. There's a, a moment where you have to kind of step outside of that and think, okay, what, I mean, it's just sort of the becoming a man moment of growing up and saying, okay, why do I want to live life? What am I doing here? Right. And right. It, and, and that it, goes for any activity. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, all I mean is that science as, a, as an enterprise, as a kind of collective enterprise, uh, presupposes that there is some good to be gained from doing science, you know? Right. And so um, if we kept doing science after, Hiroshima, well, it must be because we believe there's some good in doing it because that was pretty much, you know, you, you would have thought that that would convince everybody to just go back to the dark ages, but nope, uh, because we believe there's a good in it. And I do believe there's a good in it. But it, from a scientific perspective, the, the typical standard naturalist perspective, there's no good in anything. 
There's no purpose in anything. Evolution doesn't have a purpose. Evolution doesn't try to make us better. Uh, you know, doesn't try to make species better. It just, it's just a, a random, aleatory process by which um, species fall into slots where they're adapted. Yeah, but I've been trying to make sense of because it, it it's hard not to sort of like read any stories about evolution. Like I, I read Dawkins's uh, "The Selfish Gene" for the first time a couple years ago, and it's that's like a weird. That's talk about that's a weird book. <laughs> weird to me, fiction. it was a really, really exciting book because I had it is. I, I grew up in a in a deeply, uh, deeply evangelical and and atmosphere mm. where like evolution was considered like it, it was something that people tried to stay away from. They, they felt oh. kind of. Uh, afraid that you know the world was trying to try to make God disappear and, and explain away God, and so there was right. that you know. So when I finally actually heard somebody who's as as great of a writer as Dawkins is explain explain this theory, I was like, whoa, this is this is so cool. Yeah, but it's but it seems to like when you when you see the story of like okay somehow like this goop becomes something that eventually pursues. Good and like these beautiful, um, beautiful interactions, beautiful communities of creatures and things like that is like it, it seems like it creates something beauty, beautiful and, and something meaningful. But like, but then you say, oh, but it's not actually trying to do anything like that. But it's like it seems to be doing that. It seems to be making something beautiful and something meaningful. And yeah. why is that? Well, yeah, it's like it's, it's this great, you know, uh, Kant, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, in, in the last critique, you know, critique of judgment, where he that's where he talks about aesthetics and all that. He says, you know, we have to act as if the world had meaning and purpose. So you can't help but see, for instance, um, the leaves of a tree as being there in order to, you know, feed the tree, in order to, you know, perform photosynthesis. You can't help but think of the roots of the tree as being there in order to you know, draw water from the ground. But the fact is the tree has no head. The tree is all just in order to, you know, it's got roots in order to draw water. It's got leaves in order to draw light, but there's nothing that the trunk is just a, a, a byproduct of that process. So that where is, you know, so it's all purpose. A tree is all, it, it looks, so Kant would say, well, we have to look at a tree as though it had purpose. Even to the extent, like we have to look at trees as though it's like in an ecological perspective, you'll say trees make oxygen for us. Trees exist in order to provide oxygen for us. But of course, that's not why trees exist. That's just what trees happen to do. And then we see the, the we project that purpose right. onto them. But that's that's what they're useful interest. for for us anyways. <laughs> right. Well, but at the same time, when you consider the odds of life ever developing on earth, much less human conscious life, like higher mammalian life, let's say, like, and then human intellect. When you consider the fact that this blind process that Dawkins describes in The Selfish Genes and other books, so a process that's basically just ping pong balls, or sorry, um, billiard balls hitting each other, that's all it is. It's like, boom, 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 just chemical reactions, and then something emerges from that and something else. If you think of that process suddenly, randomly, for no reason, with no purpose and no design, producing a construct that is not actually alive, it's not actually made of anything different from rocks or anything else, it's just a construct, a particular com particularly complex machine that is not only able to see 
oh, wow, I'm in a world, but to figure out the process like we have, to figure out how these billiard balls have produced us, the odds of that happening, it's not even in the realm of odds. That's what's so weird. It's like like the, the, the last part of, of, um, of the selfish gene is about the meme, right? Did you read that part about where he talks about the meme? Yes. Basically yeah, that's one of the most interesting parts of the book. Yeah. So he develops this idea of it's basically the psychological counterpart of the gene. So he's like, memes are just contagious ideas. They're like these little, um, little like archetypes, really, you know, they're very similar to archetypes and they propagate themselves from person to person. But of course, whereas Jung saw the archetypes as being formed, like, the, like, well, actually, there's a certain Jungian take, which is very, very close to what he's getting at with the memes, what Dawkins is getting at. The point is this. Let me just retrace my thoughts. Um, I've completely lost it. What was I saying two minutes ago? <laughs> well, I mean, you were talking about, no, no, I need to get, did you, it's going to take two seconds and I'll figure finish this point. Oh yeah. All right. When you think about, okay. So for Dawkins, everything is a meme, right? Yeah. Everything is a meme. Religious ideas are memes. And the, the value, the truth value of an idea comes down to whether or not it will help a species propagate itself. That's what makes an idea good or bad. Except for the idea of the selfish gene, except for evolution. If evolution can't be just a meme, right? It has to be, it's the truth. So Darwin, and if you read closely how Dawkins writes about Charles Darwin, you'll notice that he always uses messianic language about Darwin. Hmm. Because for Dawkins, Darwin is literally a messiah, a once and once and once only being who saw what's going on, who saw the entire system that undergirds all of our illusions. Okay, so, you know, it's kind of one of those things where if you're an evolutionary person, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, which again, I do, I'm just saying it's not the full, not the whole picture. If you're a true Darwinian, you're looking around and everything will make sense according to your, your Darwinian, you know, um, take on things, your, your Darwinian theory, except if you look at yourself, because <laughs> you are not explainable. You can't be accounted for on the assumptions of the system that you're using. I mean, we, we sort of try to do that. Like, I know we do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Reading, reading Sapiens, Yuval Harari's take is kind of like, it, it is sort of more that, okay, everything is just, it's all this closed system of just survival and like, it's difficult to, to not read that book without getting a little bit depressed and just feeling sort of this this general zeitgeist state of nihilism that's yeah that's pervasive of right now. <laughs> I don't think it makes sense, and I think that the the the, the big trick uh, that modernity in general, modernity as a whole, has, has has pulled is to make humans the transcendent object. We've basically made ourselves the ones who can look out at the world and see the world as it is, you know? So whenever, so what, what we think about the world is, you know, if we think correctly with using the right methods, then we can get to a, an adequate picture of the world, which will be convincing enough and true enough right. to compel us that even our sense of meaning is meaningless. And it's really just a, a minimum viable product version of reality, though. Like we're seeing, I mean, I, I think maybe the, uh, the, the 20, uh, 80, 20 principle might, might factor into it. It's like, okay, we, we 
perceive the most useful 20% of reality so that way we can accomplish most of what we need to do. <laughs> but there's yeah, a exactly. Whole, there's a whole... There's, I mean, if, if that ratio works out that way, there's a whole other 80%, the most of reality we're missing out on because, well, because it's not immediately useful to us. But I mean, part of the, the problem there, though, is that we, we have a, a limited cognitive capacity and we're, right. we're already bombarded with so many things. I mean, we can go back to the propaganda thing. There's so much vying for our attention anyways. So it's just in order to even get by, we have to kind of close things down and focus on, okay, well, I only have this much space in my brain, so what am I going to focus on? Or I only have this much time in my day, this much energy to focus on things, this much willpower. What am I going to focus yeah. on? Yeah. But Yeah. And, and the reason we have science is to open our minds to something bigger than that. So, And then what I just said is against science. I think that Dar Dawkins, when he's doing stuff like the selfish gene, is not doing science a favor because science doesn't have content. Science doesn't have beliefs. Science is a process, just yeah. like art and philosophy are processes. And these are processes which I think um, properly used actually open our minds to exactly what you just said, that there is more to the universe than any of our systems um, can, uh, can perceive. I and so, you know, great science does the same as great philosophy and great art. I heard sense. the other day, there's this, this, I forget, my friend sent me this guy who did a TED talk and he was talking about, <laughs> he has this interesting view of reality. I, I'm not, I, I forget the guy's name, but um, he, he's talking about like, he thinks even our perception of like electrons is sort of a, uh, a useful fiction about reality, which is kind of a Yeah, I think take. I know the guy you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. talks about how like any organism that, that, you know, that is born, that, that evolves to be able to sort of see the fullness of reality almost immediately goes extinct because right well i mean <laughs> just thinking about that from the perspective i was just talking about like it's it's too much you, you can't figure out if if you're caught up in the fullness of reality it's like you're i don't know it's it's like what do you do with all of that suddenly there's so much mm -hmm. there's so much i mean we talked about before how about like how art is sort of useless and not i i said that and i didn't qualify it because some people are not going to catch that i don't mean that art is useless as in like it's we should just get rid of art but like art is useless as in we don't know what it's it's useful for and like that's the point of it is that it's something that makes us steps out outside of our utility which i mean exactly correct exactly yeah but yeah. so in that it's like okay if you are pay, paying attention to everything yeah well that's the definition of madness right <laughs> okay there um, we go yeah that, that's a great right. definition of madness but but we know that that's the weird thing is that like that guy that ted i don't remember this guy's name i think i know who you're talking about yeah so he says we don't evolve for truth we evolve for whatever is useful to our organism henry bergson said the same thing like 120 years ago um we only see the labels we attach to things. We only we reduce things to what, right. first of all, our bodies, our sensory and cognitive apparatus already reduces things to a shape. Like yeah. a hammer, if you're if you're like an amoeba, a hammer is just like, a, I don't know, a forest or something. I don't know. It's, it's not a hammer. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's only a hammer if you're a human looking with eyes and, you know, hands to touch with. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Then, of course, it takes its shape as a hammer. Um, so he says, well that's the case so we don't uh, see the world even science is an illusion because science is all using the same software 
as everything else. It's all part of this. But of course, he's making the claim that there is a more. And th th so even that claim, again, is is presupposing another claim about human beings and their ability to see. If we can see the limit, like Hegel said, if you can see the limit of anything, you're already beyond it. You can't see the limit of science or like, sorry, you can't see the, you can't point to the limit of sensory experience without already assuming or presupposing that somehow intellectually you can get behind it, beyond it. The, the human being is a stranger thing. We want to talk about the weird. The weirdest thing is the human being because the, the human being is the only species we know of that can make this, that can see its own limits. Like your cat doesn't know that it's seeing a cat world. Right. <laughs> right. But we know we're seeing a human world and we can talk about a cat world. That makes humans very different. So that's, that's what can't be accounted for from a meme gene kind of, uh, orientation I, I just don't think you can make you can make sense of that capacity in humans to come up with stuff like you know you know like natural selection on the basis of natural selection you just can't do it there's more to it than that i mean and, and there is sort of like and i'm really really new to this perspective but like within like a panpsychist perspective is like it, right it, it doesn't bother to say that there's a, a difference it's just like okay yeah it's actually true of every level of reality, everything, every, you know, you know, you could call it a molecule, every, again, it's a molecule from the perspective of a scientist, but it's like, it's not that from every perspective. That's, that's just, a, again, confined to a human world, but it's like everything that exists is, I mean, it's just, I was listening to, I think Ian McGilchrist now is, is a, of, is in this kind of community and he's like, yeah, everything's conscious. Consciousness is just, that's right. what existence is, which is yeah. a pretty interesting yeah. take. There's, there's, you know, there's, I've had like, um, I've been a little bit in that world, dipped a toe there. Um, and there's some things I like about it and there's some things I don't like about it. Um, I, I consider myself a kind of materialist in the sense that I believe that things can exist without consciousness. I don't see consciousness as a necessary ingredient to existence. And I think that that idea, which is super prevalent, you'll see it everywhere, is based on just a, a, a terrible fallacious mistake in philosophy that was, you know, it's a misunderstanding of Descartes. And I... But that doesn't mean that I don't think the conscious isn't consciousness isn't everywhere or that everything isn't to a certain extent conscious. Like I think this mug is to a certain extent conscious insofar as it is itself. And I, w I can't know what it's like to be this mug unless I become this mug. <laughs> and, um, and, but it is, there is something it is like to be a mug. I do believe that's the case. So it, it, Right. That doesn't mean that I think the mug has <laughs> thoughts and shit, but it means that it is itself. It doesn't need me to think it to exist. That's one thing that I, I, I will die well, on that hill. <laughs> the the, um, the problem yeah. I get to is that, okay, so if you're looking at a mug, again, for it to be a mug, for it to, it, it's only that, it's only the sanctioning off of things as particular things that I think is right. is that has to do with subjective subjective perspective. It's like I, I don't think that a mug exists as a particular thing other than from the perspective of, of an entity that could use it for a specific thing. 
Well, I, I think it does. I think it does. So that, that's a big discussion. But, um, but it'd be fun to have it, but maybe well, not tonight. I, 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 think, I, I some, think that, the, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I did want to get into you with you. So, so we've established that there's this there's this bigger world of perception, and, and we, even that guy earlier talking about it, it's like you die if you actually see it, or like it's it's impossible to live being able to see all of that. For some reason, we can't process all of that data. Like, mm-hmm. is there? Do you think of art as being something that has to be like you have to be careful of it, or like be careful not to step beyond your limit with art, or like like I, yeah. I, I guess maybe madness is 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 the ultimate danger of like staring too deeply into the abyss right and oh yeah absolutely um yeah i think that if you read you know the biographies of of great artists you'll find lots of it's you know it's it's a it's a sordid story (laughs) um i think that uh you know i think it's the danger is mostly on on the on the artists uh, that's not quite true. I think that there's a, you know, the, the danger is in opening yourself up really to the work. Like next month I'm teaching a, a course on this stuff. And um, the whole point is to try to convey to the people participating in it that a work of art is not an it, but a thou. It's, it's a you. It, when you. When you read, when you crack open Moby Dick, you're meeting some someone not just something not just a text not just a text written by herman melville something that is to a certain extent conscious intended you need to at least assume or or take that on as an attitude in order for it to disclose its full um power to you i think (laughs) so like uh you have to develop a one an i thou relationship with the work when you do that the content of the work will be the same as if, like right now we're talking through Google Me- Google uh, Meets or whatever it's called. If the two of us were sitting in a bar right now talking, it it would be even more kind of personal, right? right? There's something about per- we, talking to someone. We've reduced this conversation to the minimum 5%. That right. would be most exactly. doable through plus the internet. It's a, plus it's a public conversation. Right. It's yeah, not like it's just course. you yeah, and yeah. me talking in a cafe or in a bar somewhere. There's something very intimate about that type of conversation, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. That type of meeting. If you uh, if you if you open Moby Dick and you think instead of thinking, oh, I should I have you know I should you know scratch this book off my bucket list. Okay, here I go. Oh, I'm going to do 30 pages a night. Instead of doing that, if you open it with trembling fingers, expecting perhaps to be changed by it, it that may just happen. Is it? The, the, is yeah. that the difference you mean between? So uh, I, I was struggling to understand the difference between an it and a thou. Well, I mean, okay. Um, there's this is all this is uh, Martin Buber. Do you, are you familiar with Martin Buber? He's yeah. a he was a Jewish Hasidic philosopher. He wrote yeah. a book called I and Thou, which is kind of what I'm drawing on right now. Okay. It's it's just fresh in my mind because I'm prepping this course. But so uh, surely there's a difference between looking at something and calling it it. Or calling it thou, right? We we talked earlier about the difference about pornography and uh, propaganda and art, right? So, um, if you take, for example, a, a female figure represented in a painting in uh, on you on you porn or whatever, and then in some kind of um, you know 
very racist propagandistic poster. (laughs) The same woman. Right. Well, there's two it's there and one thou. There's only one, only the painting can give you the, the woman as a soul, the woman's soul, the woman as an interiority that is available, that, that, that opens up, that, that is open to an intimate human encounter. Mm. I'm not talking about, you know, whereas in pornography, the figure is reduced to an it. Right. In propaganda, the figure is reduced to an yeah. it. It's like a simple code of like, okay, do you understand what this is getting at? This just means sex, sexual desire. And it's, it's a very well, simple process. Versus- it's literally transforming the body of the woman into an object right. for your pleasure. Yeah. And you're transforming yourself into an object of pleasure. You're, everything is being reduced to this. Everything is being reduced to the, the, that, that physiological connection. Whereas if you meet a person on the street and the person's confronting you and, and it's, you're being interpolated as a person, it's a different type of relationship. Right. If the person's a cop and he's going, hey, you, and you're walking <laughs> down the street, you're, you feel pretty much like you're being singled out. There's a kind of weird I right. it there too, but, the, but the, an I thou is more like you're addressing someone as some, you're addressing someone and in your addressing them, you are granting them the same right to exist as you grant yourself. Right. You're not just sitting in the center of your universe naming things. That's my mom. That's my dad. That's my sister. That's my cousin. Hey, I hate that guy. You're actually meeting the other, <laughs> like an other who exists in the, in the same right as you exist. Right. And, and that, so, and I'm just transposing that into the artwork. I mean, if only because Melville put his entire soul into that book, right? There's something special about that book. It's not just a book. It's not the phone right. book, right? It's you open it up. It's someone's soul. Yeah. It's not Melville. Melville's dead. It's a soul. It's a ghost. Yeah. And Mel, like Moby Dick is a ghost and you, you encounter it as you would encounter a ghost or a God or a spirit. And you, you, if you, if you, if you approach it that way, then it can take you down strange roads. It can change you. Right. Um, well, it can really change you. And wouldn't it be the case though, that like, like, I mean, you can, you can put them in hard categories like that, but if, we, I mean, if we were talking about perception before, it's like, if there's more to, to everything, then, then you can bring that attitude probably to any situation, whether or not it's like, it's presented as art or not. Right. Oh yeah, well, that's what. Well, that's what artists do. That's what a great right. painter does. And, and, the, and they great kind of painter. convert it, or they make it into a more like is maybe the difference between like something that's marketed as art or presented as art is that it's like it might be easier for the common person who isn't doesn't necessarily have that artistic gift. It's like a, it's almost like a the artist has gone before and they've kind of broken up a little bit of a rift in the world and said, hey, you can walk through this portal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Henry Bergson said. If we could see reality as it is, we wouldn't need art. Yeah. Okay. I saw that quote right. in the book. I, d- I didn't quite understand. <laughs> Again, like, I don't understand how it would be possible to see reality as it is because it seems like, I mean, even to see anything from a particular perspective, I, I guess it's easy even to do this physically. It's like, okay, if I, there's a chair over there. No, maybe I, I should do something. Let's do this. Here, there's a book. Okay. This is your book. Right. 
I'm looking at it from this perspective, but I'm actually in my screen. I'm seeing a camera that's pointing at it and seeing the book from the reverse perspective. I, I, yeah. <laughs> neither of those perspectives is the book. No, the book is the book. Right. And so like, okay, there's in an your hands. infinite number of angles. I mean, within the computer, there's a, there's a limited number of frames, but from my perception of my eyes, I can't even limit those number of frames and perspectives. So I, I'm never seeing this whole book even visually, if I were to say, well, what, what would the experience be of seeing the book from every possible, even just visually seeing it as it is like from every angle or, or is that not what is that totally missing the point of what Burks is getting at? Well, you're right in that, that Bergsonian territory there. But what he's saying is that, uh, yeah, if you look at things from an I, it perspective, nothing is anything. Everything is is just perspectives at best or angles or okay. like I would agree with you that there is infinitely more to this mug than what we see. Right. But <laughs> where I part that with... That sounds the, so funny to say about a mug. <laughs> it's true. There's infinitely more to it than that. There's like a col probably colonies of bacteria living right. in this thing because it's been sitting here for an hour. <laughs> There's like milk in this. There's right. like, it, it's, a, you know, because I'm drinking tea with milk. But the point is that there's infinitely more to this mug than either of us can see. And what the idealist does is he says, therefore, this is not a mug. All I'm saying is this is fully a mug and infinitely more. If you approach it as thou, the mug, what I see of the mug is the face that the mug has decided to show me of itself. Mm. So just as I'm showing up tonight. It's decided. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just as the, the qualities of things for me, this is, for me, what we call qualities and traditionally in philosophy, qualities are, are projected basically from the brain onto things. I would think that quality what we call the qualities of an object so this mug is black and white it's this size whatever it's it occupies this space this mass whatever all those qualities are expressions of this thing that's decided to be a mug for me just as i in showing up here i'm actually here like i'm not just in your head i promise <laughs> <laughs> and and the face that you see is the way that i'm expressing my presence in this world to you right now which and, isn't decided just by you. It's it's a it's a negotiated based on your presentation of yourself and my perception, right? It's not decided by me at all. It's just what I am. I'm actually here, and I have no choice but to show you my face. <laughs> and I'm and and in showing my face to you, I'm giving you the 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 power to either negate it or accept it. You can accept it. me as another person, or you can just say, well, that guy's full of shit, or that guy is just a figment of my imagination, or that guy is just uh, an ape that has crazy ideas about the world. You can say all kinds of things about me, but you will, I, th we see one another really, going back to sitting in that bar, when we accept each other as we present ourselves to one another, as human, as persons. Right. So that comes before that relationship, that I thou relationship comes before science gets started and philosophy ever gets started making sense of all the little it's of the world. That I thou is the primordial relationship from which a world of meaning purpose emerges. And it's only in light of that I thou, which I think is permeates everything in this universe. That's why I'm a Christian. 
It's only in light of that relation, that basic primordial relation, that we can have stuff like science and philosophy and thought. All those things go come out of that and go back to it. Because they presume to, that there's like a whole, basically just that there's more to the thing that you're looking at than it being an object? Yeah, right. Well, there is more. We, we, I mean, we agree on that. There's more <laughs> to this mug than either of us can see. I'm saying that, yes, there is more, and yet it's shown itself to me as a mug, and I accept it. I accept it as a mug. I see it for what it is. It's infinitely more, but it's also that. Just like I'm like, there's like billions of microbes right now talking to you. And in fact, <laughs> everything I'm saying might be influenced by my gut bacteria. I don't know. But all this, all this, all these many things are adding up to this, to what I'm presenting right now. The I that I am to your thou. And, and hopefully that reciprocal relationship can be a true a true connection. And I'm saying you can have that type of relate. I mean, you can try this out for yourself. Go for a walk in a park, look at a tree and think the word you. Hey, you, when you look at the tree, your world will be instantly changed. I guarantee it. That tree will cease being just a birch or a maple. It'll be that one particular tree. And the idea that that tree is not really there because my brain is, that will seem so insane to you when you're faced with the singularity that is that particular tree at that particular moment. But in order for that to happen, you have to look at it and say, hey, you, you to a tree. You have to become a bit of a tree hugger. <laughs> I, and I wrote down one at one point in your book, you, you, had, you, had this, you said this quote, I, I've added it to my little quotes. Said, you said, <laughs> Everyone's an animist when they're when they're making art. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. You need to be. Um, you know, my. Do you, sorry, I don't want to. I keep talking. You probably have no, things go, to say. No, okay. no. I mean, this is this is great. I I, I don't have any particular. No. I I want to approach this conversation as an art and and right. not have a particular purpose for it. And I, <laughs> I've, I've, I mean, I've watched a few of your videos and I really dig the way you do it. So I'm I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I hope that um, there's a. You know, the example I keep going back to is the opening of the book Enduring Love by uh, Ewan Mc Ian McEwan, who's a great British novelist. And a movie was made out of that book. It opens with a horrible blimp accident. Um, and you see this, this, this one guy, this blimp takes off. And I think there's a, there's a child in, it's not a blimp, it's like a hot air balloon, right? Okay. So it takes off by accident and gets untethered and there's a child in it. So this one guy jumps and tries to drag it, tries to hold it down. But of course he gets, you know, he lifts off and then this other guy jumps onto the rope and tries to weigh it down and another guy, another guy. Right, right. And then finally there's the, the, the main character I think jumps on and he's the first to let go. And there's only one guy who doesn't let go and that guy ends up dying. So, Sheesh. okay, so that's the opening of the book. It's a great, great opening. Yeah. And Ian McEwan is a, a diehard naturalist, as, a, as in the novelist himself, he's a diehard naturalist. He writes about scientists and he's very logical. And yet the whole opening of the book, the way he paints the scene, that hot air balloon, the colors of the hot air, hot air balloon contrasting with the colors of the sky, the, the, the coincidence that this one guy who will turn out to be the kind of the villain in the book is there at the same time as the guy who will turn out to be the protagonist and their weird, the re weird synchronicities between their lives and everything is set up because like, it's a story, right? In order to make a story, you need an animistic universe. 
you know, it was a dark and stormy night means, you know, the nature is reflecting what's going on in the characters. That doesn't happen in the real world, or does it? But it happens <laughs> in art all the time, the, the, regardless of what the artist believes. So the minute you start making a story, you're creating a kind of myth. It's a, it's a, right. If it's a good story, every element relates to every other element. It's kind of a weird synchronicity, right? Which, I mean, and that, so, that's how, yeah. sort of how perception tends to work anyways, though, too. It's like, again, there, there's so much data in reality, so much even just vision is an easy example. But it's just like, okay, you're looking around and there's, there's so many things that you could pick out if you were looking for them. But like, we, the way we process things is, is like narrative. Right? So, well, it is. And, and, and the typical secular um, uh, conclusion from that is that it's, it's, it's arbitrary, therefore. You could say, well, we need to see things narratively. We need to make sense of what we see and to, to adapt them to a structure of meaning. Therefore, there is no narrative, there is no meaning, there is, but maybe we do that because that's the way it is. Like, that's what, <laughs> Which, how the universe works. The frustrating you know? part but, is, the, is like, if you're playing the game of like a hardline logic or like science or, or something like that, it's like, you get stuck in that system. And then if you want to make a statement like that, well, maybe that's just the way things, things are, the way things is, the way it is. Sorry, that's that what you said. Yeah. Um, you immediately have broken out of the game of science and now you're in a, in the realm of like philosophizing or, or, or religion or like art or like, it's, it's well, I, totally no. intuitive thought, right? I, I wouldn't, I know. I, I don't think, I don't think you're in this. The minute you say it's the minute you, you assume that the appearance of things is false and that there's another reality that's fact, you're already outside the realm of science. You're doing metaphysics and you think you're doing science, but you're not. Science is just a process of observing phenomena. In fact, science is kind of entirely predicated on the idea that the world is fundamentally rational and therefore understandable, intelligible, right? So if the world is intelligible to us, there's no way to explain the relation of our intellect to the intelligibility of the world. Why is the in world intelligible to us? Science, when it's working, when you're doing biology or chemistry, is actually a profoundly uh, mysterious process that science can't explain. Science can tell us what that star is or what that fish is, but it can't tell us how it is that we can see the fish, you know, how we can see, how we can make sense of anything. The world didn't need to make sense. And there are like a gazillion possible worlds that make no sense and one that makes sense. And I, I, I'm not uh, yeah. quite getting that jump yet, though, because I mean, I, it does make sense to me that like the world needs to make sense to me again within that very evolutionary perspective for me to survive. Like I need to have a sense of the world or I have, need to have a way of. But how do you make that jump to that the world actually has its own meaning? Well, I'm not talking about, I'm just making, I'm just saying that it's rational in its structure, right? Like the world is rational. It's, it's, it's accessible. It's amenable to reason. You're saying, you you're saying that? that or you're saying that that's what science asserts? Well, science needs to assume that to even begin. Right. That's how you trust the results of an experiment over time. If, if, if it's meaningful that, 
we've done this experiment six times with the same result. If that has meaning, it's because the world has a certain continuity to it that it doesn't need to have. It just happens to have, but we need to believe that it has that in order to do science or else there's no connection between the results of one experiment and the next. Yeah, th this is like right at the edge of, <laughs> of of the stuff I've been trying to think about lately. It's just like, okay, especially, I mean, I, McGilchrist has given me a little bit of new language to think about this problem in as far as right. like the difference between a thing and a process. I think that's what his, his new book is going to be about. He, he has a new book coming out called The Matter with Things, and I'm so excited for that. But right. like... It, it just intuitively, just reading that, hearing that title and, and the little things I've heard him say about it, it's like, okay, a thing presumes that, uh, again, it presumes borders. It presumes, like, it presumes the end of a thing, mm -hmm. which I have, I mean, okay, but contrasted with that would be like a, a process, anyways. It's like, I, I, again, I, you still think of a process as, as a particular thing, but like, he's trying to contrast them from each other. So, like, is a process like, it's bigger. It's 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 well, not it's static. It's stretched out over time, right? It's, it's stretched over time. That's that's one thing. Like, but I mean, if you look at time, yeah. as just another like. I mean, if you look at time, it's like space time. It's just another dimension of space that we experience differently, and then it just right. becomes this boring again, this static structure. As long as you could, you know, live in the fifth dimension or something like that. But right, if 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 we look at like a process as more of like an ana analogy for just like. I don't know. Like even before, you're talking about talking about trees, talking about mugs, talking about anything being a thing, and like I don't. To me, it seems like borders have to be something that's 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 imposed subjectively. Like I can see the universe being this like huge interconnected oneness, or like I don't know. Maybe I'm playing the same trick, calling it one thing. But like, well, of course, yeah, you can't get away. From that <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's like if you can't get away from it, like, 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 you know, you're not a pro. You know that you are a process, but you also know that you're a thing. Like you, you, you know that you do have borders. In fact, you'd be in big trouble if you lost your borders. Right, that would be saying, in trouble. Yeah. It's like most yeah. useful to me to think of myself as something that has specific borders. But like, I mean, even right. you get like the ship of Theseus, uh, right. like a philosophy problem. It's like, okay, I'm not a particular thing in that like materialistically, I'm, I'm exactly all these atoms and electrons and molecules and chemicals. It's like, I'm an idea that somebody could understand about those things. And my, I don't know. I, I I'm really struggling to like, I get. I, yeah. I grew up with with this like this Christian intuition about the world, about meanings and stuff, and and now I'm beginning to find so much. At least feel very interested in like a more scientific understanding of the world. But I, I cannot, and maybe it's impossible to totally marry those things. But I I, I can't make that jump. They is, still yeah. exist in in different parts of my mind, and I can't <laughs> I can't branch right. them together. Well, it's both. You know, it can be both too. I mean. I, if if you're like if you were a hardcore physicist you would argue that biology is actually not a real science because <laughs> it's true because you can't you there's no border between what's alive and what's dead there's right. no, that border is so porous that yeah. in fact biological entities are just really complex chemical entities right. which are really complex physical entities it's really it's just the wave function all we can talk about is the wave function right but that's not how reality works. Reality has multiple levels, it's including the level at which we're talking now and the level at which McGilchrist is talking about process and thing. 
uh, which has a, a storied st history in, in philosophy, that, that idea. And then um, the world is also uh, uh, um, dreams and meaning and, and, and love and hate, and those things are real too. I mean, it's all real. You know, there's no reason to negate, to say this, what I'm seeing is false. There's this other thing. That, that way madness right. lies. I think that's for sure. Well, I mean, maybe the perspective thing does help kind of because then it's right. like, okay, there's, there's an infinite number of perspectives to look at this book from and none of those perspectives is wrong, but none of them is the perspective. None of them is the book. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. None of them okay. is the book. And that's what Bergson says. You know, we can go around an object forever and see it from all these different perspectives. We will never know what it is to be that object until, if he says, through an act of sympathy, we imagine ourselves as the object. So Bergson thinks you can bridge the difference between you and the other thing by through the imagination, through the, this intuition, what he calls intuition, you can actually, through, through sympathy, which is a word he borrows from magic, you can become something. Sympathy is like an old idea in Neoplatonic philosophy about the way things resonate with one another. Okay. Um, and the, but anyways, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That just opens a new can. Oh, no. <laughs> but like the, 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 the thing about, about what you said is exactly it, but you need to, all I'm saying is that in order for there to, in order for it to be, in order for there to be something it is like to be that book you need to allow that book to exist, right? If it's just reducible to the perspectives one has of it, then there's nothing. There's no book when there's nobody looking at it. If there's something there, then it might be there might be something it's yeah. like to be that thing, that, and then okay. things are allowed to exist. I've, I've heard this word a couple times, and I mean, eventually I want to go try and read some Heidegger, but I'm sure it's going to be a tough, tough time to get through it. But is that yeah. the, uh, the idea of the design? Dasein in Heidegger is the uh, well. Look, that's is the <laughs> sort of Dasein is the self, right? Is is what oh, we okay, are. Okay. Yeah, Dasein is. Um, but he did have a sense of what I'm trying to articulate here, okay. but I don't remember the terms. But yeah, like, there's like I some mean, Heidegger reality of, of uh, or like there's something like there, there is a really real thing. Okay, so the perspective thing that helps. There's like there's an infinite amount of data that makes up that thing. I still can't, can't quite get across the borders thing, but I, I, if, if I can, if I could skip over that question, I can, I can get into that space where, okay, I, I can at least see that there's like, there is a real thing there that has like an infinite number of perspectives you could look at it from. Uh, okay. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, are you, are you married? No. Yeah, I'm married. You're married. Okay. So your wife, does she exist? <laughs> <laughs> And I'm mean, yes, <laughs> yes, of course she exists. But, so your wife exists. She has a body, and that's how you get to see her because she has a body in this world. So oh wow, there's her face. There's my wife, and there's no difference between the, this mug and 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 your wife <laughs> in the sense that they're both they're physical entities in the universe well, of physical entities. I'm listening to so these, if one thing can exist. Why not a million things? These guys like the there's a. I guess I think it's Orthodox guy. Yeah, I think they're Orthodox. Uh, they have those Lord of Spirits podcast. I'm not sure if you heard heard of uh, Father Andrew Stephen Damick. Anyways, no. they they're talking about like 
this idea of, I mean, recently they had an episode, they were talking about the ship of, ship of Theseus, which in case, I'll write it down for Evan because he, he's our little <laughs> halfway between audience member. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, there's, there's this ancient hero named Theseus and he does all these amazing things. And so he's riding around in a boat a lot of times. And so when, after he's, he's gone, they put his boat on display and sooner or later the, you know, the boards start to rot. And so they replace them. And eventually every single board in the entire ship has been replaced. The whole thing, I mean, it's, it's still the same shape and it still, it still looks like the same thing, but everything materially that made it up has been replaced with something else that was, you know, the same somewhere in origin, but it's, it's not the same materially anymore. And the question is, is it still the ship of Theseus? And mm -hmm. like the Orthodox perspective is that, yes, it is still the ship of Theseus because things don't have necessarily directly to do with their materiality, but sort of the, the thingness that they're inhabiting. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they talk I mean, about, I, yeah. Like yeah. how liturgy and stuff like that, like when, when they're playing out different events or like even, I guess an easy example, and, and this would cross over to you, I guess, because you're Catholic, the, the idea of like the, the bread and the wine actually being the body and blood of Christ, like not right. just metaphorically, like it, it inhabits that being. When the real you, presence. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. In the Catholic way of uh, the, the Thomas Aquinas way of making sense of that is is, and Thomas Aquinas gets this from Aristotle, is to distinguish substance and accident, right? So uh, things. So this mug, these are the accidents of this mug. It is vaguely circular. It has a handle. It is black and white. Those are what in philosophy, in scholastic philosophy, are called accidents. Okay. They're 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 called accidents because they could have been different. If I I could paint this mug red, it could have been red. It could have been they're contingent qualities, and yet things have a substance beyond all their accidents. That's the only way a thing can exist. Whether you call that thing a thing, an object, or a process, doesn't matter. Um, a substance is the self of the thing. The kind of the the core, so the substance of a human being is the soul. The body is all just accidents. The body, there's a connection between the the accidents and the soul in the sense that the accidents are almost like the language that the soul uses to express itself in this world. So, thinking, in the same sense, yeah. Go, so, sorry. The uh, the whole was that like a kind of a philosoph philosophical trick kind of thing where. The boat, like it's kind of a question, right? But doesn't that same thing happen physically too? I think the atoms of a human even change. Over your cells. Course. Yeah, the yeah. cells yeah. over like three years, they're completely different. Right. So that would be right. the whole spirit yeah. being underlying under that. Yeah. So, so there's accidents and there's, S, what was the other word you said? The substance. Substance of a thing. So, but I mean, even to, to go back to your, your cup analogy, so like you, you could change the form I think Vsauce has a video about this, about this, about how many holes. I think the, the title of the video is how many holes does your body have? <laughs> right. And he starts kind of going into the, I think it's the ontology. There, there's, there's some particular philosophical science or, or something, some, some practice about like the nature of things and like what, you know, what, what really is a hole because the cup doesn't have a hole. Like this isn't a hole because the, right. it's topology. I think that's the word. Um, right. And like, okay, you could, the accident of this cup, you, you could change it. And so it's just, a, it's just a flat piece of glass and, and you wouldn't actually have had to make any new breaks in it. You've just kind of rearranged it a little bit. And now it's basically, it's become a plate. It's, it's a flat surface. There's, it can't hold anything anymore. 
or at least it doesn't have walls any anymore. And I mean, with your mug, there, there is one hole in it on the side that you can put your hand mm-hmm. through. But like at a certain point, it stops. I mean, if you were to change the shape of that mug, you know, it expresses yourself, expresses itself differently. It couldn't hold tea in it anymore. Right. So it, it's hard to, I don't know, maybe I'm still getting well, snagged on this, no, this good point. utility thing where it's like, okay, at a certain point, it can't be used as a cup anymore. Yeah, but it's just like when we die, we become worm food. <laughs> you can't be used as a human anymore. You, well, you can't, you know, uh, things, we live in time and things come into being and pass away. But like, you know that a cup is a cup once you use the cup as a prop in a film. So I, 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 I'm a filmmaker. Okay. So, and I realized this when I made my first short film, we kept going to Walmart and buying a bunch of props and then we'd film a scene then return them the stuff to Walmart <laughs> the next day. And so we, I felt like I was an alchemist because I was taking right. the stuff from this junk from the store, right. buying it, turning it into elements of pure story, right? In my film, as I envisioned that at the time, like turning it into the elements of a universe that I was creating and then returning the stuff to the store. And then some somebody would buy that curtain or that rug and never know that it was in this film. But the thing is that what remains, what I see in the film is obviously the accidents of the object, right? You, if I use the curtain, I see the color of the curtain, the texture of all the accidents of the curtain. And yet once framed out of this type of, uh, uh, time-bound utilitarian mode that we usually work in where the curtain exists only as a tool once the curtain exists as its own thing in a let's say a work of art in a painting or a book or whatever the soul the curtainness of the curtain comes to the fore the quiddity as they used to call it of the curtain okay and so things reveal their deepest essence in art it's when you see that that mountain isn't just, you know, uh, a- an obstacle or the boundary between this region and that region. It's something in itself that's beyond all of our reductions of it, all of our attempts to 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 tag it or identify it. And it's not separable from its look, the way we see it. The way we see it is its own expression. And that to me is what art's all about. It's show it's letting things express themselves. In Van Gogh's paintings, the sunflowers are expressing themselves. We're not, it's not a botanical drawing of sunflowers. It's the sunflowers telling us what they are, and they're not just sunflowers. They're fucking aliens. You know, <laughs> if you look at the painting, they're mutants. They're, they're something else. There's something strange about these sunflowers. They're monsters. They're gods. They're, they're people. They're something. And that's that's the danger that's like yes it's it's a, that's it's a completely counterintuitive way of 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 thinking if you're very deeply immersed in the rationalistic uh causal framework of modern scientific or slash metaphysical thinking it's a fundamentally religious way of looking at the world but it's also i think more profoundly a fundamentally artistic way of looking at the world I'm I'm really thankful that this is recorded because I, I need to chew on these thoughts so much and I'm glad I get to go back and listen to this again. <laughs> but I'm afraid to ever listen to this, to be honest. 
<laughs> oh man but yeah it was fun well i i, I want to if you have one more minute i i, I want to oh, see yeah, if we can sure. if we can i had i had a good segue here because <laughs> you know we so we've distilled everything down or or, or it's like it's <laughs> i mean you, you, even in your title here you've called it reclaiming art in an age of artifice we're, we're in yeah. a moment where we're so surrounded by <laughs> by i mean by propaganda by 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 distilling reality to its to its most useful for our purposes thing right and and we've gone to the point you said you think we might even lose art i think we're even losing we're losing people right we're yeah. we've distilled almost everything including how almost everyone is just like the the whole i thou experiment with with a mug or with a tree that that's probably a, a useful I, I'm excited actually to go try that. But it's it's try crazy it. because it works. we can't even do that with things that we already use the pronoun thou or you with. We we already objectify people. Mm-hmm. And I mean within I'm I'm trying to even figure out the story of what's going on here, but like, okay, if somehow we're at a place where reality is so it seems like it's so about to fall apart that we're building up all of, we have to fit everything into its box so that we can fit into this rigid system. Maybe it's the system of of our government or of our society where we're too big or something. I I, I can't exactly put my finger on that problem, but, but somehow we're getting to the point where, yeah, everything is, is distilled down. Even everybody, especially, you know, the, the ideologically opposite of us is just a thing to be, to be conquered, to be, to be, pointed at and to and to be scapegoated mm-hmm. and i mean how do you see a way out of this i mean I, when i think about it, it's difficult for me to think about a story of the world and where we're going that isn't kind of depressing like i i have sort of a hope but i mean i it, maybe it's even just my evangelical tradition showing that like it's like the the evangelicals have this this view of like oh, everything's kind of going to shit anyway, so let's just try to save as many people as possible. That, that way, that way, God can destroy everything, and then we can get to heaven. <laughs> mm, right, right. Um, do you have like a, a, a an op? I mean, are you optimistic about where we can go right now, or or, or do you feel this sense of like? I'm feeling it too. I mean, it's hard not to feel it these days. Things are seem to be th- things seem to be headed in a very very dark place and it might get much a lot darker. I am kind of just I'm pretty optimistic. Um because Let me think about it for a second. <laughs> It feels like optimism is is almost a fundamentally irrational thing to have. Like optimism is yeah. the thing that that's like looking past the system, past your past what you can think about. Because okay, this is okay. How can I say this? So you're right. You're talking about systems. I think that we've become as as a civilization, we've become obsessed with control, controlling everything, um, and that starts at the dawn of modernity in like the 16th 16th century in Europe this idea of control this idea that human beings can occupy the center and know everything and reduce things to what their uses are to it and kind of dominate and now we have construct through think thanks to our in- 
the ingenuity of, of, of our technicians, engineers, scientists, whatever, we've built the technology we need to not to accomplish this, we'll never accomplish this, but to um, surround ourselves with the signs of that accomplishment. <laughs> so, so we, um, we like Google Earth is a good example of that. It, it's mapped everything except every place. Right, like Google Earth, as 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 you read in Moby Dick, it's like real places don't appear on any maps. Right, like any sailor knows this. It's like what right. Melville writes. Is, is that Google Earth? They, I, I've heard that phrase a couple times. The map is not the territory. I don't know where that's originally from. Is that is that in Moby that's, Dick? That's later on. Yeah, the map is not the territory. Is is no, it's not in Moby Dick. But but he said it essentially. He said, okay. uh, you know, um, real places. I don't remember exactly how phrase, but real places don't appear on any map. So. Google Earth will give you a picture of every everywhere, but you know that weird little corner behind your house at the back of the alley where the vine is growing just so along the gutter, that Google Earth will never touch. And that's the substance of the real. It's these little these places that are that you can only really know by being there. And again, I would argue by adopting an either how how I have a relationship. I'm very tired, guys. Sorry. Sorry. So well, I, I like to take walks and I like to have these little places that I see again and again as I walk by them, you know. Um, that little backyard over there, that tree over here. And into the Google Earth will never fucking map those things. It, it, they'll never so all of reality is free of this. Like the universe will go on, everything is perfect. We're the problem. And the problem is only a problem to us and to the you know myriad species we're ex we're exterminating and the you know the planet we're destroying. Granted, but the point is this: is that the failure of this attempt to control everything will be is becoming evident already. The technologies that we hoped would eliminate tribalism, hatred, everything. You know, the internet in the '90s was like communication; it'll yeah. solve all our problems. I Everybody will be just talking; it'll be transparent. We'll be communicating communicating they love that freaking word you know <laughs> it was like all about how we're going to be communicating right. all the time and we'll it's be the, this philosophy of inclusion as if inclusion is an intrinsically positive thing right right that was the idea and now it has imploded it's created the exact opposite uh our technologies have completely failed and and we, I think we're coming to realize that every techni technical solution will always fail. You know, it's like uh, Paul Paul Virilio. He's a amazing French writer. He he. Oh no, it wasn't him. It was Jacques Ellul. Sorry, he said uh, the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. Do you understand what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Is you bring a, a, a technical solution to, to one problem, the technical solution itself becomes the source of another problem. So Jacques Ellul, he's a French uh, theorist. You should check him out. He's awesome. He wrote a book called Propaganda, which I have here on my desk. It's, it's a great book. And he wrote uh, his great classic. It's called Technological Society, where he really dissects this uh, technological society that was just coming about when he was writing. Um. He, he was fond of pointing out how the highway system, you know, in addition to being a great way for people to get from point A to point B, is also an essential uh, machine for dispensing young, healthy organs. 
right? So all organ transplants, like virtually all organs that are used in a transplants come from car wrecks, car crashes, because that's where young people die with healthy organs. And so mm -hmm. if you were to eliminate the highway system, then there'd be no more heart transplants. Right. But the heart transplants are often necessary or a lot of the organs and blood transfusions and all that stuff are necessary because of car crashes, right? So this invention of the car creates a whole kind of calculus of, of problems and solutions. And then you need more problems, more solutions to solve the new problems and blah, 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 blah. And it keeps piling up. Technic tech every technical innovation is like the sorcerer's apprentice, right? When he starts reading the spell book and starts animating the brooms. Next thing you know, there's like a thousand fucking brooms cleaning the place. <laughs> and it just never ends. You, you just, because we uh, aren't able to ever see, as you were pointing out, see the full picture. So we reduce the world to this little picture. And then we come up with a solution to solve the problem that exists in this little picture. And we don't realize that in that little picture over there, which we're ignoring, it's out of our field of vision. This is causing a huge problem over there. Right. I mean, and, so, and that's even the way that's the way medicine works too. It's like, okay, we, we know a very, very small little bit of what our medications do, and sometimes it's a net positive. But it's like yeah. the, there's the human body is such a complicated machine. I mean, even to right. call it a machine, that's I shouldn't say that. It's, it's such, a, such a complicated whatever it is, and it's like we we distill it down to this mechanistic thing. That's okay. Well, this does this, and this does this. It's like. Sure, it does that. I mean, like yeah. you said, it, it is those things, yeah. but there's this whole other game of what's going on in there, and you have no idea what it is. And if you presume to think of it as just that little thing that you're, you know, you, you, even if you presume to think that, oh, the heart is just the thing that, you know, that pumps blood. It's like, yeah. that seems pretty straightforward, but it's like, yeah, I, I, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. And the universe is 80% dark matter. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's like, that 80 20 so principle more. again. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, like, the, yeah, that's, that, that's the thing. So, we, we, uh, we need to, to chill out with this urge to control everything. And that's the big worry is that we won't really learn this lesson because power still lies in the hands of some pretty crazy people who really believe that they can do this, mm -hmm. who think that by more technical solutions, we can solve these new problems and that those problems won't, like we'll clean the ocean with nanobots. Oh, that's a good idea. We'll unleash an army of yeah. <laughs> trillions of nanobots, which will eat up the plastic in the ocean. And then they'll stop. They won't come out and eat us when they're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like so, so it's like, but how do we get out of it? I don't yeah, know. That's exactly. I, I was hoping you had some some intuitive solution to this, but like, <laughs> yeah, I have I, the solution. There's, there's, <laughs> we're we're frustratingly bound to our own pride, and like, how do we, how do we set that aside? How, like, I mean, I had a conversation just last week with another friend, and I was talking just about this general feeling of like powerlessness in a world that feels like so mass. I mean. It's it's maybe even analogous to the the Lovecraftian like the sense of like okay, the powers that be just don't care about what I want or what I would try to do, and it's like my my intentions almost don't matter. Right. And he critiqued me in saying that okay, no, you actually do have power. You're just you're focusing on a story that you don't have power over. Yes, and there always is a story you don't have power over. 
uh, you know, like even if we weren't in this particular predicament, uh, we might have been, you know, the two of us might have been taught or the three of us might have been talking during the Black Plague, you know, in uh, 14th century Europe. And then we would have, you know, it would have felt the same, you know, that town, everybody's dead there, everybody's dead there, it's coming here, what do we do? You know, there's always, um, we're always tiny little mites in a huge monstrous universe that just wants to just doesn't give a shit about us that we're all in that situation at the same time as we know that the fact that we know that is insanely miraculous it's like it makes us anything but a little mite you know and so somehow we're able to see much more we you know to see that we can't see the big picture is in a sense to see the big picture it's to dwell in what right. the book and with the book in the book I call radical mystery. We know the radical mystery. This is a gift we have as humans. We know maybe that it we, is a mystery, anyways. We know that there is a mystery. We know that no perspective will ever get to the bottom of things. But knowing that, that's and that can you can construe that negatively by saying we'll never know the truth, or you can say as we can you can say it positively is the truth transcends all particular truths. Right. Well, but it's, that still gives you an access, a connection to truth, right? It gives you a connection to truth as a transcendent object, not as something you'll find somewhere in this world, but as, you know, August, Augustine and others have said, or Anselm, whatever, a circle whose uh, center is everywhere, but whose circumference is nowhere, right? That's how God was described by the church fathers. So, like, the... the Interesting. Took me a second to take that in. <laughs> Whose center yeah, well, is everywhere, whose circumference is nowhere. So, so it's like everywhere is the middle, but there's, there's no limit. Exactly. That's the, 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 the idea, the medieval idea of, of, of God. It's not a dude in the sky with a beard and a, you know, it's, it's something much bigger. We only call it God because it's the opposite of a God. It's not a God, you know? So, like, it's just a way of talking about the ground, the ground of being, as Paul Tillich said. And and without a vision like that, I think that we're doomed because you either have a vision of truth as a transcendent thing that transcends all particular utterances so that the truth is always something on the horizon, never something in your grasp. Either you see it that way or you'll mistake something in this world for the truth and therefore ruin us all because you will... You, that truth will become the center of a little tiny partial picture of right. something infinite. It's it's that right. both and thing where you have to somehow look at an object and say it really is that thing that I'm seeing, but it's also so Infinitely much more. more. Exactly. Right? And, and if yeah. you lose either either part of that, you you end up on some form of nihilism. <laughs> Correct. I, I I think that's brilliantly said. I think you're absolutely right. You can either end up in the nihilism, the pastel nihilism of the idealists. Or the horrible black nihilism of the of the hyper hardcore materialists, you end up either way with nothing really existing. Right, but the, the real, you know, the exciting version of of life is is too eternally irre. I mean, even let's talk about too eternally irreconcilable conceptions of reality that like that are constantly in conversation. It's like that's the only way to build a, a relationship that lasts forever is two people that can never fully understand each other. Right. That's you just summed up my marriage. <laughs> I, I told so, my wife that the other yeah. day. I was like, you know what I love about you? I just don't get you. 
uh, Gilles Deleuze said, you, you, can not, you can't love someone until you see that point at which they just lose it. They just not not that where they lose their patience, but where they lose the thread. When they they just you can just see the I'm trying to translate the French in my head. When you, you you see them kind of just go off the rails in their minds, like there's something about everyone that's a little crazy. That's that like rift. You know, we all know like, that. When, when, yeah, like whenever we're talking about someone who's not in the room, usually we'll end up talking about how crazy they are. Oh, so and so he's kind of nuts, you know. He's he does this thing and that thing. He's like this and like that. Oh, he's that's just you know so and so. That's just the way he is. And and there's something kind of sad about that. The way that everybody talks about everybody when they're not around. But there's a way that's kind of that's the way you love someone. It's by knowing how kind of crazy they are. You know, everybody's kind of nuts. And it's when you find that point where someone kind of you can't understand them anymore that's when the that's when that's the rift right that's the rift that invites you to see them as the person that they are as this unique singularity this unrepeatable unrepeatable event in the history of the universe and that little rift again is a symbol it's a, it points us to bigger rifts and bigger rifts until we get to the big huge rift you know the giant vaginal cosmic rift that is <laughs> the mystery itself right out of which we emerge and towards which we will eventually return. <laughs> that's I think good. I said vaginal there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, that's a pretty high point. I feel like there's so much more I, I want to chat with you about, but I, I don't want to... I'm, I'm always trying to be conscientious of making sure that I don't put up a video that says like three hours and something minutes because I feel like nobody wants to click that. But it's been two hours. I think we've pretty much yeah. hit our yeah, <laughs> the YouTube limit. So, um, well, at least for YouTube, let's. Uh, uh, thank you so much for for doing this, being willing to. to I mean, I, I know it's kind of a weird context to sit there and try to have a semi personal conversation all all the while realizing where somebody else is going to listen to this later. But this has been really. Well, really I'm used fun to now. it. <laughs> yeah, I it's guess been I a guess. lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad that. Uh, and good luck with it and everything. Thanks and I so listen much, to your music and I really, really love oh, your voice thanks. and your guitar playing. It's great. I really stuff. appreciate that, man. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>